0: back. Good morning, welcome, and welcome to those of you joining us online. You may well know that FEC is part of a large family of churches that we call the Alliance Canada, spread across our nation. And in our city, we have a awful lot of churches where people gather just like we do to worship God and to serve Him. this morning, I want to ask you to join with me in prayer in a moment or two for one of our churches, Harvest Hills Alliance, in the north of our city. You may have heard or read in the news of a plane crash, a small plane that took off from Springbank and went lost contact on Friday evening and was discovered in the Kananaskis area on Saturday morning. There were six people on that plane. Nearly all of them, I believe, were part of Harvest Hills Alliance Church. One was their youth pastor. One was the son of their worship pastor. A couple of them have young children under one year of age. Two of them were brothers. It is a tragedy beyond belief And this morning, I want to invite you to join with me in praying for those who have been bereaved, people whose hearts are torn apart, and for a church that will gather much as we do this morning. And I have no idea what they will say or do. We want to pray for their pastor, Myron, as he leads them and guides them through an unbelievable journey that no one could have imagined. Would you pray with me, please? Father today in the midst of our joy our hearts are heavy some of us know these people well and for some it's just a name and a story but we have your love in our heart that provokes us and encourages us to love one another and so we pray for brothers and sisters that we may not personally know but we pray today that you would be all that they need and in a collective grief that many of us could never understand and hopefully would never experience. We pray that you would meet with them and that in the anguish, they would discover hope. They would discover your grace and your presence when they need you most. We pray for relatives and friends whose lives have been shattered by this news, that you would be the one who holds them close to your heart. And we pray for a church family and their leadership this morning as they gather to do their best to worship, that in their brokenness, you would be their everything. We don't really know how to pray, but your word tells us that your spirit prays for us when we have no clue what we're doing. And that's our confession today. But we pray for them. We pray that your spirit would rest upon them and that they would know the hope of Christ in us. The very hope of glory. We pray in his name. Amen. This weekend, we're coming to what very well may be the first letter that Paul ever wrote to any of his friends or churches. And if that's the case, and it most likely is, then this is the oldest part of the New Testament, written long before any of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the first piece of Christian literature ever really written, the first letter to the Thessalonians. Next week, we'll dive into the second letter. Who are these people? Where did they live? Why is Paul writing to them? And as the title of our series goes, more significantly, how will we respond to what we have read? Will we do anything about it, or will we just leave it left unread? Could we allow the Holy Spirit to enable us to say yes to Jesus? this morning. Thessalonica had been founded in the 4th century BC by a guy called Cassander. He was one of Alexander the Great's military officers. And he named it after his wife, who was called? Thessalonica. Well done. Somebody's figured it out. Smart man. And she was Alexander's half-sister. Very smart man. (laughs) It had a great natural harbor. It was situated on the main road that went east from Rome. It was called the Via Ignatia. But it wasn't a Roman colony, it wasn't a retirement center for retired soldiers like Philippi was, and yet it still was a leading city in the region and part of the empire. And in Acts chapter 17, we can read the story together of how Paul and his friend Silas, or Sylvanus, depending on your translation, how they came to be there. They were on what would be called their second missionary journey, their second big exploration, heading further and further west, telling the story of Jesus. They'd been to Philippi, where all the Roman soldiers had a retirement home, and things hadn't gone well. They'd been in prison. You might remember the story from when we read that letter. There was a big earthquake. The prison doors all opened. And that night, not only did God rescue them, but the jailer and all of his family came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And they quickly left town before there was more trouble. Acts chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this is the Messiah Jesus who I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women." you got to note, he said three Sabbaths. That's like three Saturdays. So that meant they were there three tops, four weeks. But it wasn't long before things started going sideways for them after their three or four weeks. And this is what we read in verse five. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some brothers and sisters before the city authorities shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. <laughs> what an accusation, turning the world upside down. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying there is another king named Jesus. The people and city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they'd taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. And undercover, Paul and Silas were smuggled out of town. And they headed off. But eventually Paul was concerned, how's this going? They'd hardly started their little church. Until leadership had been taken from them. And so he sends his young friend Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how things were going. And as it turns out, things were going fairly good despite all of the challenges. And Timothy comes back to the missions team to Paul and Silas with great news that this little church is thriving. And so Paul decides to write a letter to them, I'm guessing three, four months after he had visited. And he begins Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. The church he's talking about are people who are grounded in God. They're rooted in Christ Jesus. They've discovered that his death and resurrection opened the door to salvation, to a relationship with God, to freedom and forgiveness from their sins, to the opportunity of a life filled, not just now, but with all eternity, filled with God's grace. And they're excited about this. Paul, just delighted in what's been going on in them. And then the reality for us is that sort of experience can easily be ours today. Maybe you've never really known God's offer of forgiveness or his offer of friendship, his offer of life with him, his offer to make you a brand new person, but it's his offer to you today. Paul begins then in chapter one with a prayer and a story. He begins to pray for the things that God has already done, giving thanks. He says in verse 2, We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Three themes that we'll read about, not just in this letter, but in almost all of the letters that Paul wrote. The most famous of all that we would remember is probably 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Love. And as you read chapter one, you'll see the things that Paul's thankful for. He prays about being thankful that they have responded to the good news of Jesus and said yes to him. He's grateful for their joy, even in challenging circumstances. He's grateful for their example to other believers, their testimony of turning to God from idols. He's grateful for their faith in Jesus. It made me begin to think, if he'd visited us, what would he say about us? What would he say about us? What would he be grateful for? Chapter 2 moves from the prayer to the narrative or the story. Paul recounts his visit with him for those few weeks. And as he tells the story in chapter 2, if you want to read it later, you'll feel his emotions as he writes. In verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. In verse 11, you know that we dealt with each one of you as a father with his children, and again later on, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. And you can sense the emotion that Paul has, the strong feelings he has towards this little church. And as chapter 2 wraps up and chapter 3 opens up, he reminds them of his concern for them, his desire to visit them again. He's so glad that Timothy brought a great report. He's desperate to go back and see them. And he prays for them again. And in this written prayer, we get a glimpse of why Paul was writing to them what concerned him most. And he prays like this in chapter 3, verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. He's praying about hope and about holiness. And so I want us, if you like, to look forward. We've looked back a little bit to the journey, to look forward to these things that Paul is talking about and lean into these two themes in chapters 4 and 5. I want to start with hope. You see, although this was a brand new church, maybe only a few months old, it seems that some members or some people who had accepted Jesus have already died. We don't know how or why. But the church is grieving. And they're grieving because they don't really know what all this means. They've not got the Bible the way we do to read. Paul had only been with them a little while. They have way more questions than they have answers. And so Paul, he doesn't want them to be left unsure. And he says this to them in chapter 4, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's really a straightforward question that he's answering. The question they have in their minds is, what is the fate of the followers of Jesus who die before he returns? Quite possibly they expected the return of Jesus in their lifetime, as many people would today. But they didn't know, was it only the people who were still alive when Jesus came that would go to be with him forever? Or what about those who had already died? They didn't really know the answer to the question. And so he answers and deals with it with clarity and urgency. And he's reminding them that the destiny of everyone who follows Jesus, whether they die before Jesus reappears or whether they're still alive when that happens, all of us will be with our Lord Jesus forever. Paul was never a big fan of ignorance. He wanted these people to know and understand these spiritual truths and how they could change the life that they're living. He understood well the challenges that people face. And our lack of ability to make good choices when we just don't understand or know what's going on. And so in chapter 4, he gives them this great summary of everything they need to know about this question. In verses 13 through 18, he answers this question about our eternal future. And he says this, "...the dead in Christ will rise first from the grave. And then those who have been risen, who died and rose again, they'll be united with those who are still alive." And everybody will receive a resurrection body as we gather together with our Lord Jesus. He wants them to hope. Death is a very poignant experience for all of us. No matter how deep or strong our faith in Jesus is, the loss of a loved one evokes a response and reaction that most of us have never experienced in any other way. It's like we lose ourselves, like our identity crumbles. Like our world has stopped in motion. We don't know where to go or what to say. People still move around, but we stop. That's how it was for me when I lost my mum 22 years ago. The process of healing is long and slow and in some sense it's never really complete. It's just hard when we lose a loved one. And Paul's writing to them saying that our grief can be different. Because we don't grieve like those who have no hope. In those days, a Greek philosopher and poet, Theocritus, once said this Hope is for the living, the dead are without hope. Death was final, that was their worldview. I mean, one way we kind of put that together and make it more palatable is the story of the Lion King. I should really sing it, but I'm not very good at singing. But the circle of life you die, you become fertilizer. The grass grows, the animals eat the grass, you eat the animals, and then you die. That's how it goes, the circle of life. It's just natural. It's part of life, nothing to be afraid of. But Jesus will have none of that. That is not at all a Christian thought. Don't ever assume it is. Jesus, when his best friend Lazarus died, he didn't say, Oh, well, Lazarus, you know, the circle of life, let's bring Rafiki out and we'll all sing a song. He quakes with rage. He cries and he weeps because this is an abnormality. This is not how God designed our world to be. He never intended for any of this. He never chose for death to be what comes our way. The poet Dylan Thomas once wrote, he said, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light and that sums up how God feels about death and he did something about it Jesus came to deal with the reality of intrusion of death into our lives and Paul would exclaim in another letter to his friends and he would say where O death is your victory where O death is your sting do you know why because Jesus wins in death claiming him he destroyed the power of death forever when he rose from his grave and through his resurrection and death Jesus has destroyed the power of sin and Satan and death once and for all. That's why we can grieve differently. Hope is a powerful force in the hearts of a believer in Jesus. To lose hope is to lose just about everything. So what is our hope? What is it that makes grief different from those who don't know Jesus? For some, death becomes this permanent end. That's just it. But for others who trust Christ, it is the transition to something else. Paul's key phrase is found in verse 14 of chapter 4. He writes, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. The key phrase there, we believe that Jesus died and rose again it's the bedrock of Christian faith because whatever is true of Jesus becomes true of us wherever Jesus is there his people will be too Jesus died and rose again means that those who trust in him die and will rise again death is defeated he writes to them saying that Jesus will come again and gather all to himself those who have trusted him who have already died and those of us who will still be alive at that moment in time will gather together to spend eternity together not floating in clouds and playing harps and eating philadelphia cream cheese You don't float about in the kingdom of God. You'll have a real physical resurrected body, which means you're going to eat, you're going to walk, you're going to sleep, you're going to hug, you're going to love, you're going to sing. I get you're all going to work too. Maybe not quite as dull as some things that we do these days, but working and taking care in this new earth that Jesus promises he will bring with us. A delight and not a chore. And it starts when Jesus gathers his people together. A gathering where all of the followers of Jesus are reunited. And a gathering where all the followers of Jesus are united together with him. He's coming for us all. I mean, it was Jesus himself who said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am going, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going if I go I'll come again that was Paul's message that's what he wanted them to understand about Jesus there will be a return of Jesus a resurrection of those who have already died and a gathering together with those who are still alive when we meet Jesus and so he says encourage one another with these words but his letter isn't just to satisfy some curiosity about the end times it's about hope an encouragement in the face of real-life situ- situations like death and eternity. His message of the return of Jesus is a word of comfort to those who are bereaved and distressed. It's a warning to those of us who are careless and unruly in our journey. And for all of us, it can be a stimulus towards holy living. Because faith, hope leads to holiness. Hope leads to Holiness. What does Paul say about it? How does it propel us forward? Well, let's start with the reality check. God doesn't want us to mess up in life. His desire has never been that we just manage to scrape through and get by and no more. He wants us to live well and live to the full, the way He intended life to be, the way He designed us to live and to love and to do life with Him. But when it goes wrong and we fall short, we have an advocate. We have Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who prays for us, he speaks for us and his promise is that when we confess our sins he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And honestly, some of us heart find that hard to believe. Some of us feel just way too unworthy from that. It's as though we feel we've gone way past the pale. God could never forgive me or at least he could barely forgive me. If only you knew. And we find it hard to believe that we can be forgiven. And yet Jesus is the one who forgives. He is the one who sets us free. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing is beyond his touch. Nothing is beyond his forgiveness. Nothing. But some of us, well, we take this offer of forgiveness very lightly, too lightly, thinking, well, God's going to forgive me. It'll be okay. (laughs) Can I gently remind you of why he forgives you? because of Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross. And when we take God's forgiveness lightly and loosely, the scriptures remind us that it's as though we're trampling underneath our feet the very blood of Jesus. Be careful. But no matter how you look at it, God longs to do more than just forgive us. He wants us to be transformed from the inside out. It's kind of like when we've got little kids around, and they're learning to walk. When they topple over, you pick them up, and you get them going again. And the goal is for them to walk by themselves, to discover and experience independence. The trouble with the metaphor is it doesn't always work. My neuro issues cause me to lose balance sometimes, and it's hard to stay vertical. But most of us don't fall over or topple over because we're challenged with balance issues, that we're unbalanced. Most of the time we fall over is because we make poor choices. It's because we're so wrapped up in ourselves, we have no time for anyone or anything else. We want to do life independently of God, and God is not picking us up so that we can become independent of Him, but so that we can discover the wonder of a life with the Creator who holds us and loves us. But how would that happen? How do we actually have this kind of a relationship with him? How does he change us? Well, in chapter 5, I'll let you read this at home on your own when you've got time. In chapter 5, Paul has this big long list of practical steps that would be really useful for any of us to pay attention to in the journey of following Jesus. Take it, read it through. They're mostly like phrases or little sentences of how we can learn to live a life that truly honors God. But his big answer is close to the end of chapter 5. And he says this beginning at verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do this and again it's a prayer for a relationship when he uses that word sanctify it means belonging to God devoted to God set apart from God that we live our response in life, our responsive lives to the one who loved us first many of us here today know what that means some of us don't some of us are still not sure or struggling or looking or wondering can I really live a life that honors God can I really have a relationship with God can I be part of all of this but regardless of where you find yourself in that journey God wants that relationship with you. And because of this distance that we so easily experience between God and us, this barrier, he's the one who crossed over to the other side. He came to us in Jesus, born of a virgin, living a life, wandering around Galilee, telling people the stories of who God is and what it would be like to have a relationship with him, healing the sick, touching many people, setting them free, and eventually sacrificing his own life that even death could not keep us from God. He invites us to this relationship where we trust him, we follow him. If you like, we pledge allegiance to him and put our faith in him. What does it look like? Well, Paul uses an interesting word. He's called it blameless, that our lives would be blameless. He uses that word two other times in this letter. The first instance is back in chapter 2, verse 10. He talks about his team's conduct in the city when he's telling the story of when they first arrived. And blameless is the last of three adjectives he uses to describe himself. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. Everything they did among the Thessalonians was open and above board. And we see this combination of motive and action in his words here, a pure motivation and behaviors that matched alongside it. That's integrity when they come together. Blameless, in other words, has got something to do with our motives and our actions and having integrity in our hearts. His second use of the word is in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that little prayer that we read again. But let me read it one more time. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he strengthen your hearts in holiness so that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The first part of the prayer is about abounding in love for one another. The bond between love and holiness is significant here. Holiness and love, they go together. In Paul's view, God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the very hallmark of being a follower of Jesus, that we're filled with the love of God. And he prays that it will grow and grow in their hearts wherever they go. And in order to make sure they understand that, he gives an example here, a significant example of what it means to love like this. He says in chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul doesn't just get stuck in the abstract with big words like sanctify. He's a little bit more like Olivia Newton-John, I think, when he says, let's get physical. <laughs> But you think about it for a moment, though. In his time, one of the Greek authors, Demosthenes, once wrote this. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, and we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. It's easy for us to look down upon the ancients and go, what's wrong with you people? Like, seriously. But what about us? Our culture easily deifies sex, in Paul's day, you'd these mystery religions and sexual acts would be performed as part of their worship because that's how you thought you would, things would grow in your garden. They would some sort of fertility cult going on. In some ways, we still deify it. I read years ago of an interview with Helen Gurley Brown, who was the auditor of Cosmo for 32 years, and she said in it, I've always said the best three things in life are one, sex. And then she stopped. And the interviewer asked, what were the other two? And she's like, I don't know. We deify it and make it all important. But here's the thing, sex is good, but it's not the essence of life. Sex may well be wonderful, but it's not the most important thing about being human. Sex is a human desire, but it is not a human need. On the other hand, there are people then and now who degrade sex. Lots of conservative Christian people today that have got all sorts of things to tell everybody about how they should live. And yet their motivation so often feels so much less like following God's word, as it is just a disgust about sex, and we degrade God's good gift. The early church had people like that too. One of the father's earliest preachers, Origen, he was so worried about the evils of sex, he took a knife and castrated himself. Another one, a guy called Gregory from a town called Nyssa, he thought that Adam and Eve had never eaten the apple, they'd never have sex, they'd reproduce like vegetables. Like what? (laughs) But there are people then and now who degrade God's gift of sex. But holy living can't simply be reduced to sexual purity. Sexual purity comes from a matter of exercising self-control over our own body, which is premised upon the fact that we don't exploit other people. We love them, but we don't exploit them. And genuine love, as opposed to self-centered love, never exploits. It's why holiness, centered on love of God and love of neighbor, is incompatible with promiscuity. For God did not call us to impurity, he says, but to holiness. Blameless living, then, has something to do with the grace of God in our hearts, through his love that's poured into our hearts, so that our motives and actions are held together with integrity. It doesn't mean flawless. Don't ever think blameless means flawless. He could hardly pray that, because that would mean some sort of static perfection, where there was no room to grow and develop. We kind of sticking our head in the sand about the realities of life. But what he is saying is that the followers of Jesus are committed to integrity to think and act and speak according to the demands of love. Our motives should be the love of God and others. Our actions should be the love of God and others. That's what Jesus told us. That's integrity. That's blameless. The final time Paul uses this word blameless is in this little prayer in chapter 5, verse 23. And he uses words like sanctified, through and through, or entirely, or spirit, soul, and body. He's referring to all aspects of our lives for all of our lives. Nothing left out. No excuses, no sidebars, no other explanations, no get-out clauses, everything. All of our lives for the whole duration of our lives. Or as we'd say it here at FAC all for Jesus. He's praying that we'd embody the love of God in every aspect of our life and being because God wants you to be holy. He wants you to have his character. He wants you to be a partaker in his divine nature. He wants you to become like Jesus. So often people think of a word like holiness as a negative thing. The absence of moral fault. Proud, stiff-necked people, dressed in black, being miserable as long as possible. When actually it's a very positive thing. It's the shining reflection of the image of God shining off of us and back for other people to see. It's the reality that the presence and reality of Jesus becomes more and more visible in our lives. That when people see you, they think you look more like Jesus now than you did before. And people are drawn and attracted to you. Not necessarily because you look stunning, but because you look and live like Jesus, the God who loves us and lives within us and whose love is changing us and reaching out to those round about us. That's why hope leads to holiness. That's why on a weekend like today, we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. Because in that simple meal, we look back, just like Paul was doing, We look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we look forward when Jesus will come again. We look forward to his great banquet when we get to spend all eternity with him. And so, Father, as we come to the time of sharing in this little meal, we remember your great love for us. Thank you for your gift of Jesus. Thank you for your promise that whoever would believe in him that we would know you and know life eternal. Thank you for your promise of forgiveness and for the reality of a life made new. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to enable us to live well and live for you. Thank you that you've promised to sanctify us through and through and to make us holy and to make us like Jesus. And so as we receive these gifts today, we simply pause and say thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If you need to get a communion elements and you don't have them, if you raise your hand, one of the ushers will come quickly to you. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He was in an upstairs room. They had their meal. And then he took some bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat together and be thankful. And after supper he took the cup and as he looked at his friends who probably had little clue what was going on he said to them this cup is the new covenant and in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and so today as we remember and give thanks we say thank you to our king